Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The latest U.S. inflation figures show that annual price growth has declined sharply, even as gas and rent prices ticked up slightly. The bond market came down with it. This as investors also struggle with continuing political chaos on Capitol Hill, where GOP lawmakers can't pick a speaker, and a new war in the Middle East that might have global ramifications. This as Russia steps up its own attacks on Ukrainian forces, plus a look at supply chains, maintenance, repair, and overhaul, and the future of commercial aircraft propulsion, and Boeing's dismal production and delivery numbers. Uh, Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are two of our team, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners is off this week, but joining us instead is our good friend, Dr. Kevin Michaels, Aerodynamic Advisory's Managing Director. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. And Kevin, uh, welcome aboard as part of the team. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, clear across the other uh, side of the country, because the way you figured this out, you go to Seattle, give a speech, then fly, uh, then then fly to uh, Las Vegas for uh, the National Business Aviation Association conference. So the great route planning on your part. You know, got to make use of our nation's low cost carriers. <laughs> exactly. And more uh, on that later. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off uh, as uh, you do uh, uh, every week. And, and just to say it was terrific seeing everybody in person at the aerospace event hosted by Joanna Speed, uh, as well as at AUSA. So that was terrific. Uh, Ron, as you do every week, start us off on um, you know broader markets, how they performed and how the group performed against that broader market. Yeah, sure. The, uh, the S&P was up. Uh, about half a percent, 45 basis points. Uh, the real performers this week were the defense names uh, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, in fact, because of obviously what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, so Northrop Grumman was was the real winner of the week. It was up almost 16%. Uh, Leonardo DRS was up 12%. Lockheed Martin was up uh, 10%. L3 Harris was up 8%. General Dynamics was up 5%. Um, the, the Boeing company was actually down a percent and a half. Uh, and then if you look on the other side of the Atlantic, BAE Systems, that was up about 10%. Safran was up 3%. Uh, and then Airbus was down, kind of like Boeing, um, a, a little over a percent and a half. And MTU was down about a percent and a half. Uh, given that we're moving into uh, NBAA this week, so this is the big BizJet week. When you look at some of the BizJet names uh, going into the week, uh, Textron was up uh, just under 2% last week. Embraer, 3.5%. Bombardier was flat. Um, and like I mentioned, General Dynamics was up 5%. Uh, the, the 10-year yield came down from just below the 5% level to about 4.5%. And that, I think, reflects the, the uh, inflation numbers you were talking about. That being said, the VIX did go up, not surprising, given uh, the changes right. in the Middle East. It's, it's just a smidge below 20. And to remind everybody listening in, it bottomed out around 12 uh, about a month ago. Uh, WTI crude. Uh, surprisingly went up but not that much that's the surprise it's not surprising it went up but it, it's, it's at 88 it's been in the mid 80s uh brent uh 91 and um so given everything that was all the moving parts in the world it was a, actually a relatively calm week in the market 
And, uh, you know, you did uh, mention uh, a little bit of the, uh, you, you know, European performance as well. Sash normally gives us the rundown. Give us kind of a quick rundown on what we saw in Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, it, the European markets were pretty similar to the U.S. where, um, you know, the defense names um, reflected what's going on. Commercial names have given back some. And we've seen a little bit of the, I think, the the bloom come off the commercial rows. Uh, I think part of that is uh, the, the supply chain constraints and challenges that we all know uh, well, uh, and I think we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then also, you know, in this tr- kind of majorly post-COVID world now, uh, airline travel dynamics are getting back to the more normal seasonality. You're seeing articles about revenge travel being over. Uh, so it's just, you're. I think you're getting back to just kind of a more normal dynamic uh, in the commercial aerospace world. Uh, in uh, indeed, um, and uh, just uh, really uh, quickly, um, how are investors responding uh, to the chaos on the hill? Right, Jim Jordan. You know, although he doesn't have the votes yet, and we'll see whether or not he becomes House Speaker, is a fan neither uh, of Ukraine uh, nor of more defense spending. And then we've obviously got uh, a new and very hot war uh, in the Middle East, and w- we don't know whether or not that's going to spread uh, or whether or not. Right. We're going to find oil related uh, moves by Arab powers in the wake of this, which has which has happened in the past. Um, walk walk us through like the kind of questions you were getting from investors last week. Yeah, I think that the biggest questions were around. You saw the, the major defense primes move, make big moves on, on Monday. Just let's look at Northrop Grumman as an example. Northrop Grumman was up over 11 percent on Monday. And I think investors were trying to figure out, you know, was that quote unquote short covering. Was that just that they were under-owned? Is it that people were re-evaluating the defense thesis? Uh, by the end of the week, the incoming questions were more about, okay, where's defense spending really going to go? If the U.S. is going to support you know, allies in two different regions of the world and also supply its own needs, you know, what's that mean for the defense industrial base? What's that mean for the budget? What's that mean for defense contractors? So, you know, my, my sense is uh, the the, uh, the market is sharpening its pencils, as it were, and doing a little bit more work on defense and trying to figure out uh, what it what what it all means. Um, you know, the uncertainty on the Hill, I, I think investors are more comfortable with that in a weird way, because we, we've seen, you know, maybe not this thing happened before, but other things happen on the Hill and, you know, sooner or later they figure it out. And, um, and that's kind of the way it goes. And I think that's, that's what the market is, market is thinking, but what the market's really trying to get its head around is, you know, was, um, the events of last weekend, a, a turning point in sort of the geopolitical stability dynamic. And what's that mean, uh, for defense spending, or is this just sort of a little one-time pop? Uh, it's uh, abs- absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, Richard, uh, what's your sense, right? And and Kevin, right? What are the nature of the questions you guys have been receiving uh, from from folks, from reporters, right? I mean, you guys are really cross-cutting in, in sort of the breadth of folks you talk about. Richard, what were, you know, some of the big questions that, you know, both your your clients and reporters and others were were, were putting to you? Well, and, I your, think it, and your takeaways from, you know, what you've been seeing over the past week. Yeah. I mean, it basically complicates um, the production ramp on the defense side of the house, because, of course, you know, you had this uh, industry that was struggling to meet demand, much higher levels of defense spending in the aftermath of Russia's Ukraine invasion. 
but now this. And, um, you know, what does it mean for missile markets? Uh, or what does it mean for missile production? And what does it mean for resources for everybody? Because, of course, you know, you have defense contracts that are typically priced a little bit better and a little bit protected against inflation and everything like that. So it tends to get priority in terms of uh, resource allocation, particularly labor. What's that going to mean? You know, it's important to remember we already had this sort of um, split nature of defense. You know, you had air and sea systems increasingly given priority because of the challenges in the Pacific regarding China. Then you had sort of a, a drag back to the land war. I think AUSA two years ago was a far grimmer affair than, you know, it was this week because, uh, you know, the army is suddenly very, very relevant again. So you've got those two challenges. And then on top of it, with the, uh, the Gaza uh, attack, you know, you've got um, the third leg of warfare, the sort of Middle Eastern, um, I don't want to say low intensity, because it certainly seems high intensity from uh, from on the ground. But it's a different, you know, it's, it's more, more along the lines of counterinsurgency uh, operations other than war, you know, at war, but not quite, you know, it's a completely different set of requirements. So you've got all three forms of war fighting basically absorbing resources in one way or another and that of course is a huge challenge and again there's that knock-on challenge to the commercial side of the house there are none of our clients none of the the contractor community aside from the very top companies like lockheed martin or northrop Grumman, are pure play you know they have to balance resources right. for both the civil and military side and this complicates it yet again um, I, I should also point out, right, that the administration is looking at a supplemental package that will include Ukraine aid, Israel aid, as well as Taiwan aid. Uh, and we heard that from uh, Michael Hurston, and it is going to be a very large uh, ask uh, the administration is going to do by lumping all of this in. And and ideally, their motive is, uh, you, you know, whatever it is that you want to achieve, there'll be something in this that will be attractive uh, for members uh, to go for. Uh, Kevin, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, you uh, are one of the world's leading experts, not just on supply chain, but MRO, as well as, you know, aviation and, you know, just about everything else you touch. Uh, give us kind of your sense on, you know, how supply chains manage to cope with all of this, uh, because, you know, our supply chain was straining uh, to supply Ukraine and, and uh, revitalize our stocks. Uh, now we have a situation where we pressured our allies and partners, including Israel, to ship munitions over uh, to Ukraine. Now we're having to surge to get munitions to the Israelis, whether Iron Dome uh, interceptor weapons or any you know precision bombs and and what have you. Uh, while at the same time, you know, we're saying, hey, we're going to surge to satisfy Taiwan's uh, uh, requirements as well. You know, give give us a sense on how the system is reacting uh, or not. Well, all these events layer on top of what we've seen the last several years uh, in in structural issues um, in the supply chain, um, and which it, which are root causes labor in some cases. In other cases, it's just getting material. Um, you know, there's been just over the last several weeks. If you look at what's happened at Spirit, for example, with the CEO um, Tom Gentile um, parting ways. Um, I think there's just a general sense of angst <laughs> that the supply chain is going to be able to deliver. And when you get into artillery, now you're talking about things like uh, castings. And that takes us into the world of right. some of the big Achilles heels, casting, forgings, uh, steel uh, is in short supply now, very long lead times on that. And this can only add to that, uh, add to those uh, issues. 
um, what do uh, what would you, as somebody who watches this, what is it the government? I mean, we we talked about this a little bit at Joanna's conference, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the best demand signal is money. But what are some of the things that the Pentagon and the leadership uh, and the administration itself need to be doing? Do you think uh, to have sort of a more organized response to this? You know, we, we've yet to really see how um, procurement and spending is going to change as a result of what's happened in the last two weeks. But, you know, Vago, I, I, what I would say, uh, one theme that we're hearing more and more is that there is a big difference in the way that the Pentagon treats suppliers and contractors and the way the commercial world treats suppliers and contractors. Uh, I've written about this and spoken about this for years now, as has Richard and Ron. But, you know, payment terms, it sounds like a mundane thing. Um, but what's happened on the commercial side is that over the last 15 years, payment terms, meaning I deliver you something, you know, you, you inspect it and you approve the payment, um, were 30 days typically in our industry. And it has now gone all the way to 120 days on the commercial side of the house, 120 days. Some are at 90 Standard Boeing terms right now are 100, uh, 120. So when you look at companies like Spirit and you ask why are they in such in weak in such weak condition, this is a contributory factor. On the other side, on the military side, the Pentagon has actually been very good. They accelerated payments during the COVID crisis. Arguably, they kept a lot of suppliers afloat. Standard payment terms are 30 days, but for smaller suppliers, it's 15 days or less. And what we're now starting to see is suppliers making a conscious choice to focus on the defense side of aerospace because they are treated better. They're not treated as a bank. Um, and it allows them to, you know, to keep a, a stronger cash flow and balance sheet. So um, we're, we're, Pentagon is actually doing a lot of things right. And you're now starting to see suppliers and sub-tier suppliers choose the military aerospace market over commercial. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating, and and it's uh, something that's actually been happening under our noses. And we talked, uh, and we've talked to Mike McCord, for example, the Pentagon Comptroller, about that. Uh, just a quick word from our sponsors: Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air. Uh, and naval coverage. I, I want to go to your guys' uh, presentations uh, at uh, Joanna's uh, conference, and I recommend to folks check out the conversation uh, that Ron, Richard, as well as uh, the co-host, uh, my co-host on the Air Power podcast, JJ uh, Gertler of the Teal Group, uh, had, uh, which was just a, a great uh, impromptu uh, discussion. But first, I want to go to Boeing's uh, numbers. Uh, delivery numbers and and what they uh, tell us. Part of this challenge, as we heard from Kevin, uh, and we've been discussing on this program, has been the Spirit Aero Systems part of it, right? I mean, 737 deliveries depend on um, complete fuselages arriving on time uh, in Renton, and uh, John Ostrauer of the Air Current has done uh, some great new uh, reporting on that. Ron, start us off and want to get each of your bites on that apple before we go into some of the broader strategic discussions about aircraft propulsion, changes in the defense uh, market, as well as uh, wartime lessons learned. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I think the, the the big factor was the 15 737s that were delivered. Um, that's well below um, where I know Boeing hoped to be. Um, they were telling the financial markets 
and I think their supply chain, um, that they were hoping to deliver between 400 to 450 airplanes this year, um, unless things ramp up pretty materially in the, you know, the next couple months, it'll, it'll be difficult to, to get to that target. Uh, and this just kind of points to the, you know, the issues going on in supply chain, particularly at Spirit Aerosystems. And um, I guess the good news is, I mean, the, the issue is from a production perspective, limited to that which has been already built. So the 160 or so airplanes that are in inventory, plus the other 60 or 70 fuselages that are sitting around kind of like wine bottles in a rack um, in Wichita <laughs> waiting to be shipped. So all that has to be fixed. But my understanding is at this point, um, presumably that the aircraft coming off the the line are, or excuse me, the fuselages coming off the line are the way they should be. Um, John pointed out in, in the air current that originally the F bulkhead, pressure bulkhead issue was thought to be just with um, holes that were drilled with the, you know, automatically. And that actually this also has impacted holes that were drilled manually. Uh, and it's a broader inspection process that's just going to take longer to walk through, which implies that this will probably impact Boeing deliveries in the short term, at least for the next couple months. Um, and then hopefully at some point they get this behind them. Richard uh, and Kevin, your guys' takes on this? Yeah, you know, it's uh, that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. It just seems that the, you know, it, there's always going to be surprises, you know, I mean, and I think Boeing, and this is something Kevin's written about for years, effectively, Boeing kind of abnegated responsibility for a lot of the supply chain. And I still don't think they've got a handle on what the potential surprises um, are or could be. So uh, <laughs> 400 this year, yeah, of course, not going to happen. What does next year look like? Will there be more surprises? It's really tough to tell. I mean, and having said that, I'll, I'll accuse both sides here of being terrible at guidance. It was only last November that Airbus said, oh, by the way, we won't make year-end goals, you know, just like that. But wait, it's November. I think you could have told us that before. You know, and uh, with with Boeing, of course, they're not doing a great job, you know, providing guidance as to what they're going to deliver and, of course, what the risks are moving forward. But, of course, in the meantime, a few days ago, or maybe it was last week, you had the um, the memo leak that said, oh, yeah, no problem, 57 per, in mid-2025. Uh, okay. Um, I hope they've done an extremely thorough job looking at their supply chain and areas of weakness. Um, because there are certainly areas of weakness given what the supply chain has been through. We always knew this, and again, Kevin's written a lot about this over the years, that the production ramp would be even harder than surviving the downturn because of the challenge and getting working capital and the appropriate levels of talent and uh, and, and, and other resources. So uh, expect to be disappointed, I guess is where I'm going with this. <laughs> expect, expect more bitterness uh, and sadness. Uh, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, and I would just uh, add to the the prior comments that what's happening in the supply chain in general in aerostructures, the major aerostructures firms, it's it's if you go back in time, six seven years ago, the biggest aerostructures firms uh, were Spirit, um, Triumph, GKN, um, Stelia, which is a, a subsidiary of Airbus. Premium Aerotech, also a subsidiary of Airbus. Um, and the, so those were the big five, uh, a year, you know, in the mid-teens. 
And you look at what's happened since then. Uh, Triumph has gotten out of the business. They It was destroying their earnings. They made over a dozen divestitures, and they are now a pure play component company and, and are out of aerostructures. Um, GKN has been taken over by Melrose, a turnaround specialist. They're closing their plant in St. Louis uh, to Boeing Chagrin. Uh, there's movement to try and stop that, but it's not likely to happen. We've already talked about Spirit, which earned minus 9% margins in the most recent quarter. And this is before the labor cost increases are really going to hit them. Uh, they're on the way. And meanwhile, Airbus was getting ready to spin off its two subsidiaries, uh, Stelia and Premium, um, just like Boeing had done with Spirit. And they've reversed course. And they've right. now said that Aerostructures is core to Airbus, to their capabilities, um, that Stelia will remain part. They've created something called Airbus Atlantic, where they've kind of merged Stelia's Aerostructures capabilities with their own internal. And then Premium Aerotech, which is really their German Aerostructures assets, has gone through a restructuring, and it does not look like they're spinning it out. So I think, you know, these issues are taking place against the backdrop of a very stressed part of the supply chain. There is no more stressed part of the supply chain than aerostructures, and especially when you go down to the Tier 2 and Tier 3 suppliers. They don't have aftermarket revenue, so they don't get a, a bite of that apple. It's really all about production volume. So that's kind of a worrying trend, and I think you're seeing OEMs, Aircraft OEMs now ask themselves, what is the appropriate amount of outsourcing? So it's a complete reversal from what Boeing did on its 787 supply chain strategy, where it, you know, it famously kind of outsourced almost all of it. Um, let me uh, just go back to uh, the question I asked, right? I mean, about supply chains uh, really briefly before we move on to uh, each of your respective uh, presentations that were uh, terrific. Uh, Kevin, you know, you said the DOD does much better than commercial industry does, right? That some of the smaller uh, companies, and unfortunately, a lot of these, um, you know, I mean, going back all the way to Pentagon Industrial Policy Chief Brett Lambert, right, was uh, talking about the tier, uh, you know, the assessment of the industrial base and how actually, you know, like a huge amount of capability hinges on handfuls uh, of smaller suppliers, uh, fascinatingly. What what broadly can the government help do and work with commercial industry, right? If we want to increase steel production or anything else, I mean, obviously, if you can exert your power to exact as much money as possible, right, because of supply and demand, uh, that's certainly what everybody does, even if you might not like it. At a moment like this, what are some of the things that have to happen to actually accelerate production of the things that we need to build the weapons we need to get them to our allies and partners? DOD may have the you know have a beat on the problem, but if you're depending on steel manufacturers that don't want to necessarily increase production or increase production too much, you're at a problem. Or whether on castings or on forgings, what do you think more broadly has to happen by way of industrial policy that actually gets us to where we need? to deliver to our allies and partners because we ultimately are the arsenal of democracies, plural. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm loath to um, to go down the path of uh, there has been a lot of industrial policy action under the current administration, of course, CHIPS Act and so forth. You know, and I guess the question uh, question that's getting raised now is, are we uh, being are we not being assertive enough and thinking about what is strategic? I know there was a big review before um, three years ago, uh, looking at titanium sponge. That is, that's the, that's the input to titanium. And uh, the last U.S. Uh, sponge facility 
in Henderson, Nevada, uh, ended up closing, you know, after that. So we're totally dependent on, on Japan, as it turns out, has stepped in. But most of the world's sponge is produced in China, Kazakhstan, Russia, uh, places like that. So uh, so some of this is being revisited now. Right now um, uh, in titanium, um, we're now starting to see investment go in. Uh, we've had announcements of facilities expansions, so forth. So, you know, Vago, I don't know that, uh, you know, I think we need to look harder at what is strategic. Was that sponge decision the right decision um in in staying out of it or not um so we'll see on that um, but outside of that i think it's just the market will follow where you go and if you're treating the suppliers well and giving them good payment terms you know they will respond with capacity it just takes time uh, ron and richard i want you guys to take a bite uh at uh that uh apple uh because as far as i can tell are the demand for U.S. capability is going up, and we're still struggling here. I understand there are redesign issues, there are industrialization and facilitation issues, there are raw materials issues, but ultimately, defense production is deterrence. And if your adversary looks at you and says, hey, wait a minute, you know, they're unable to fill their own needs, they're unable, they're struggling to fill Ukraine's needs, now they have Israeli needs and, you know, Taiwanese needs, hey, this might be an excellent time to zonk them in the nose, right? One of the challenges we're worried about uh, with uh, the Chinese. And Ron, you know, your presentation at Joanna's conference was about sort of a defense market that's changing uh, structurally uh, and why. And Richard, yours was Ukraine lessons, which you artfully expanded to Hamas lessons. Take a bite at what are some of the things we need to do and reprise uh, your comments at that conference because I thought they were utterly terrific. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, it's you know one of the the things we talked about, and it's important is labor. Um, when you when you think about the defense industry, or for that matter, the aerospace industry, unless you're talking about things like 155 millimeter rounds, it's not that high volume. When you look at the the higher end systems, it's it's lower volume stuff. Even when you look at commercial aerospace, if Airbus were to get to the 75 per month. At some point, which they probably will, that's 900 narrow bodies per year. And to put that in perspective, um, you know, Kevin, uh, Richard, and I were all at the Ford Bruce plant a little while back, and um, they're having issues with their electronic supply chain. And the day we were there, the tour guide mentioned to us, you know, Ford has 80,000 F 150s parked. So I kind of went back and looked, you know, 80,000, that sounds like an enormous number. I mean, it is. It, seemingly, but that's just a month and a half of inventory for Ford. So right. just think about that, 80,000. I mean, we haven't built 80,000 commercial jets, right? Not even close. Um, so it's you, you, when you think about the industry, there's aspects of aerospace that are very unique to aerospace and defense, given the, the, the artisan nature of a lot of what goes on. And labor is hyper important. And labor has proved to be a big challenge for, for everybody. So I would put forth, I mean, you can't get to the volumes that the industry would like to get to and needs to get to for all the reasons that you mentioned until you can get workforce things worked out. Now, that dovetails with some changes in the industry. You know, we are seeing movement towards a more digital industry, more autonomy in the factory, more autonomy on the battlefield, and you have new players emerging. Um, just as one example who's publicly traded is, you know, Palantir. I mean, their their, their real focus is, is you know, kind of behind the scenes in a factory or behind the scenes in the Intel world, 
helping sort through a lot of things in a more autonomous AI driven way. Um, but but you're seeing these changes happen. And, and, and I think what one thing is encouraging, and this was, I think, one of the takeaways from uh, AUSA this year, was the, the, the new guard, the, the Palantirs, the um, shield AIs of the world aren't necessarily competing with the old guard, but maybe working with them. And in that perspective, they can all kind of win because you can take some of the older systems, maybe update them, use some of the newer technologies. And if kind of everybody works together, you might be able to bring forth defense products that more efficiently, that can work better. And I mean, that's a win win for everybody involved. Um, I thought one of the great statistics that you also uh, uh, mentioned was in 2000 years of European history, there've been about 500 wars, right? So I don't know why everybody's surprised Yes. Around war in Europe, yeah, yeah. happens I mean, every yeah. four years, historically yeah. speaking. <laughs> historically speaking, that's the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And when you when you look at it in that perspective, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Sadly, that's the way it is. I mean, same thing with interest rates, right? Uh, I right. mean, I'm a big fan of my interest rate chart. And you go back, and I can't, I can't claim it. Michael Hartnett, who's a strategist at, at Bank of America, is his chart. But you know, if you, you go back 5,000 years, you find out 5% interest rates is actually pretty, pretty darn normal. Um, and that having interest rates near zero is actually not, not normal. So when you think about the interest rate environment, yeah, the change from zero to five feels big. And, and from a change perspective is big, but actually at an, as, as an absolute level, isn't so big. I, I, I think these are the kind of statistics that makes this sort of all worthwhile because ultimately you look at it and you're like, you know, the people live in a fantasy land that you can get something for nothing all the time. And then when it normalizes, people are like, what? Normalized? It's like, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> Discuss. Um, Richard, uh, I want to go uh, to uh, your kind of takeaways, right? I mean, you know, at the time that you were giving this briefing, your your charge was talking about the Ukraine war. You artfully uh, adapted it a bit to talk a little bit about um, the uh, extraordinary nature of Hamas's brutal attack, you know, using unmanned systems. You know, somehow this surprised people. I don't know why it would surprise anybody because unmanned systems are now a staple. You, you, you're using unmanned systems to take out unmanned weapon turrets, for example, that then you can use bulldozers, right? I mean, you know, every adversary and enemy is adaptive. And at some point, uh, they out-brutalize their last uh, bar of brutality, uh, if, if you will, right? Hamas adopting more ISIS-type techniques, for example, and how it prosecuted its terror campaign. Uh, against Israel. What are some of the lessons you think folks should be learning, you know, not just broadly from Ukraine, which we've discussed here uh, a lot, but also what this latest attack tells you, kind of including about the democratization of air power now, which which has been something that theorists have been talking about for a long time. Yeah, you know, I mean, one consistent theme from warfare for a very long time now has been about the importance of combined arms and uh, the interlocking relationship between everything from you go back far enough, uh, you know, cavalry, horse-drawn artillery and uh, infantry and whatever else. Today, of course, it's uh, it's everything from 
you know, uh, mechanized infantry, mobile artillery, tanks, cyber, um, electronic warfare, and of course, air power and whatever else, they all have to work in harmony. You know, the whole, ah, this is the silver bullet. This, you know, ATACMs or F-16s, this will do it. It's It would be good to give them those things, but um, they really have to be viewed in context. And somehow the, the Hamas leadership absorbed this lesson. The fascinating thing about these savage attacks were that they actually were kind of an illustration of combined arms on the cheap, you know, sort of right. everything from naval to, yes, poor man's air power gliders and, and tunnels and uh, a bulldozer for armor and what and and whatever else rockets for artillery. Uh, you know, it was combined arms and extremely effective. But one other consistent theme that seems to be carrying the day here and probably has relevance to Taiwan is that uh, the mantra should be large numbers of small things, you know, uh, basically overwhelm the enemy, hence hellscape stroke replicator, the Pentagon initiative. I'm not so sure if that's as relevant for the Taiwan Straits as it is for Ukraine or uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but, or I should say Israel-Hamas conflict, but, um, you know, Clearly, the idea of building large numbers of expendables uh, is and, and making them as cheap as possible. Remember, it was only 10, 15 years ago we regarded the future of, uh, of remotely piloted and, and, and uh, uncrewed systems as looking like kind of like, uh, you know, an RQ-180 or an X-47 or whatever. Now it looks like something used to buy at Radio Shack. It's basically all about, again, large numbers of small things. And that, of course, has its own challenges for the industrial base. Uh, just to quickly, if I may, turn to the uh, the industrial base question, because this really is, as you say, mm -hmm. a, you know, a battle for production, you know, the arsenal of democracies, as, as you say. You know, this is, um, I think, one of the most interesting lessons, uh, and, and certainly a theme that we discussed at Joanna's uh, conference, was uh you know it, it does our system work you know <laughs> i mean obviously you had a free market defense industrial base that scaled down way 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 you know faster than you know i mean it, it fell in line with mar the market that's that's what a market-based economy does and that was very painful it's painful to recover from it but on the other hand you know, two cheers for capitalism. That's the one cheer that I wouldn't give, but the two cheers. One, we are globalized, so we take advantage of industrial partners in production in allied countries, which we're doing from Germany to Korea, doing really well at that. Countries that aren't globalized, e.g. China, Russia, they're going to be disadvantaged, hugely. Um, even France, because of their monocultural uh, industrial production methods, they produce great stuff, but it tends to be Franco-French. That disadvantages them. Second, uh, as Ron mentions, uh, mentioned, you know, the arrival of new players with, uh, well, uh, uh, com you know, complementary capabilities, Andrea Palantir, plenty of others, everything in new space. Absolutely. You know, we're really good at new start companies and capabilities when we have to be, you know, for many years, of course, we weren't every year the, the Pentagon would say, of course, we have lower barriers to entry. There's General Atomics. And 10 years later, well, of course, there's General Atomics. Now there really is a proliferation of new starts. And that's absolutely what's needed. And check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host 
with our very own JJ Gertler and a special congratulations to Chris and Chris and to Laura for winning uh, the best in their categories uh, at the annual Defense Media Awards. Uh, congratulations on a job. Very well done. Keep up the great work and it's terrific having you as part of our team. Uh, Kevin, uh, I want to uh, bring you into this and ask you pretty much uh, the same question before we go uh, to your uh, brilliant, uh, you know, assessment of uh, future power requirements uh, for commercial airliners, which I wanted to give you a shot at. But what do you think are some of the lessons from this uh, ultimately uh, and how we need to adapt uh, to some of the military uh, side of the equation? Um. So to follow on what Richard said, um, you know, one point he made in his speech as well was, which I thought was fascinating, is that fundamentally what's happened is the the advantage is now shifted to the defense. You know, we've gone through waves of military innovation favoring offense and defense at various times in history. Um, you know, most recently um, in the 60s and 70s with the uh, and 50s with the invention of surface air missiles that shifted back to defense and and that's that begat stealth de- development stealth technology development and other things that shifted the advantage back to the offense which we saw clearly in in in, in operation desert storm 1 um, and now uh, it really looks like with we have persistent ISR um, it's inexpensive. It's democratized. We have communication channels now that are and, and data links that are supported by, you know, low Earth orbit satellite constellations, i.e. Starlink. Um, and we have these cheap uh, unmanned systems and all of these uh, tend to tend to favor um, the defense. And if you look at what's happened in Russia, Ukraine, after the very early days of the war, it's really gone into a stalemate, you know, not dissimilar from what we saw in world war one another time when defense was there so to me that's a, it, it's it's a broader takeaway of this and it also raises questions about um maritime assets and the need uh you know do we need as many aircraft how vulnerable are big maritime assets when a, a navy a, a shipless ukrainian navy has pushed the russians back in the black sea uh to the far you know basically to the whole um eastern part of the black sea and away from the main parts of action so i think to me that's it's a broader takeaway as well um i i uh, couldn't uh, agree with you more and i just at this point have to give a shout out to uh, two people who i consider important mentors andy marshall uh the late great uh founder of the pentagon's office of net assessment was talking about this uh you know decades ago in the mid-90s, he was already looking forward to what happens when the United States starts losing some of its systemic advantages and how adversaries respond and the importance of mass and numbers. And Art Sabrowski, right, uh, at the Office of Force uh, Transformation was talking about swarming capabilities and what more unmanned is going to mean and how it's going to actually fundamentally change how it is we need to look at the future and the time both of them that were met with some degree of skepticism and i would argue still are met with some degree of skepticism despite uh the evidence that we see in front of us and kevin great example right ukrainians don't have a navy but they've pushed the uh, russian black sea fleet out of sevastopol over into novorossiysk 
uh, onto the uh, eastern uh, side of the Black Sea. L let me ask you uh, about your, uh, we've got a couple of minutes left, but it was a terrific uh, presentation uh, you made about sort of this notion that hybrid power is going to take over the world and batteries and all of that. This is something we've been discussing on this program uh, an awful lot uh, on a weekly basis, but sort of give us your sense on the, the latest assessment that you and the aerodynamic team did about sort of where we are, where we're going as airlines uh, try to green themselves. Uh, I thought Robert Thompson, by the way, had a terrific uh, briefing that the you know British Ministry of Defense's land holdings can help Britain achieve some of its green goals because you know that real estate is consuming carbon, uh, which which I thought was uh, sort of an interesting way of doing that. You want to fight uh, greenhouse gas, <laughs> you know, you want to fight. Uh, you want to go to a greener world, plant more trees. Uh, anyway, give it, give us your sense on what the market for airplane power looks like. And as Ron uh, has discussed, and we've discussed on the program, that you know a blended wing body does give you that kind of lifting power in order to do some more creative things. Because I think on this program we're all blended wing body fans. Go ahead. Yeah. So as mentioned, um, our company has done a, a lot of work in the last several years looking at alternative technology, alternative propulsion technologies and everything from battery electric um, to hydrogen combustion to hybrid and um, sustainable aviation fuels, which kind of overlays, you know, on this as well. And there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of headlines out there about retrofits are coming, you know, later this decade, we're going to see fuel cells and so forth. And um, basically the message is that, that what we've concluded is that um, these alternative technologies, hybrid, battery electric, and so forth, they're mostly going to be limited to 30 seat and less aircraft for the foreseeable future. Um, we need to let uh, energy density of batteries grow. And as it grows, it's not going to move up into the jetliner world, but it could you know, enable um, a 30 seat aircraft to travel, let's say, 500 miles and give sufficient range, but that's out in the 2040 range. Um, so our conclusion is that the industry right now really does not have a path to decarbonization by the by 2050, which is the stated goal. Um, it does not. And um, therefore, uh, the one lever we have that is feasible, which leverages existing infrastructure, is sustainable aviation fuels. And uh, we've seen a lot of press announcements recently about agreements between airlines and the SAF producers. But the bottom line is that a lot of these are really marketing driven, uh, that a lot of SAF today is paid for out of marketing budgets. And airlines want to use just enough to get the headlines, but not too much to damage their financial results and their competitiveness because sustainable aviation fuels are you know, three times to six or seven times more expensive than conventional Jet A. Um, so in the U.S. right now, there are a lot of incentives going in uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act to incentivize producers of SAF and, and even green hydrogen. Um, in Europe, they've taken a somewhat different approach. It's more of a mandate-driven approach where they have laid out a mandate that by 2030, European airlines must use 6% SAF by volume and then by the by 2040, somewhere in the 30s uh, in terms of percentage. So it's it's a real dilemma. And I think there's a there's a strong argument. I and mean, we've concluded that current trajectory is that maybe we'll get to 20% SAF usage in the 2040s. Well, that's barely gonna dent 
the emissions of the aviation industry. It will help, but right. we're going to have to scale up in a much, much larger way and get even more serious um, about SAF or aerospace is going to have a big problem in its hands. Kevin, uh, thanks very much uh, for that. And uh, Richard, uh, give us uh, a quick uh, sense on what your expectations are from NBAA. Uh, and we can uh, discuss in greater detail next week, because I think all of you are going to be there, or at least two of you are going to be there. Ron, you're going to be there. Richard, you're going to be there. I'm not sure, Kevin, if you're going to be there, but go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing a panel, which includes Ron here, um, about the you know health of the industry and the market and everything like that. And I, I think uh, right now things are sort of conservatively optimistic, but still a little concerned because, you know, the sort of white hot enthusiasm for, you know, a, a real huge bull market, unprecedented numbers uh, from, from last year, clearly that's that softened a bit. So how much more are we going to soften? I think there's going to be that aspect of it. And, uh, you know, whether there'll be any, you know, product announcements or any kind of big order activity from, you know, people other than NetJets, of course, just placed a huge order. That's going to be really addressing to gauge that level of enthusiasm. And again, I, I think things will be, you know, cautious, but some still somewhat upbeat with a bit of, you know, discussion about the supply chain and uh, how quickly it can uh, recover from the blow it took during the uh, the past couple of years. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Kevin, thanks very much for uh, stepping into the breach. Ron and Richard, uh, thanks very much uh, for just being you and bon voyage uh, to you all on your transit across our uh, great nation. Great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, really enjoyed it a lot as always, Vago. Thank you. Thanks for indulging me, Vago. I have no idea how you three do this every week. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it, I, I think we could pr bring our audience sort of the three hour version of it. Uh, but fortunately, <laughs> we have we we we'd like our audience enough to just give them 45 minute or so doses. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much uh, again. And a very special thanks to all of you for tuning in uh, as you do every day. And a special thanks uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, please tune in again tomorrow for our look ahead program. And joining us will be our special correspondent in Israel, Barbara Rome, uh, Sam Bendet of the Center for a New American Security and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Hope you guys have uh, a great day, a uh, great weekend, uh, and a great evening, and look forward to having you back on again tomorrow.